0: Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch.
1: Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. Today, my guest is the CMO of Harry, Jennifer Rivalli. Now, Jennifer's career no doubt has passion, a passion for HR tech. You'll hear her in a moment call herself an HR tech nerd. And that really allowed her to jump into this opportunity of a very high growth company in Harry, a company that's got over 500 customers with 22,000 locations. And that's because each of their customers actually ends up having multiple franchises or storefronts. And this makes for a very interesting conversation today on the idea of how do we expand into our ideal customer profile or ideal account profile from an abm perspective So she talks about how harry used to be very happy with a five franchise store but now they're getting into opportunities where there are thousands of locations so for a lot of us we're always thinking about how we want to go up market and jennifer gives a lot of the tactics from an abm perspective on how to do this she also talks about transitions in her own career moving from a company of the size and scale of adp to being able to adapt into Harry. And she actually talks about how ADP surprisingly gave her some of the skills to go and grab opportunities by the horn. This is a great episode. So excited for you to tune in. So here we go. I'm thrilled to have you here, and I definitely want to get to this opportunity. Your first is a CMO, but let's talk about the space you're in and the passion that you have for HR because you've been with some big HR companies, uh, ADP, iSims, before coming to Harry. So, what, what's the passion and connection here?
0: Awesome. Yes, I am an HR technology nerd. Um, and, uh, I really kind of got into it actually more in the benefits and healthcare space and came into HR, uh, to run a stealthy startup within ADP, um, focused on that. And what happened over time was learning more about the space and the impact that it can have on people. I started to take on more and more responsibility on how you take talent and really use that to kind of power organizations. And it's become a real love. That's kind of why I stay there and why I really enjoy it. And in the case of Harry, I think our mission is really unique in the fact that frontline teams have very much been neglected by HR technology traditionally. And Harry truly gives you the opportunity to empower those teams through technology um, that no one else has really attempted to do. It's it's generally too hard uh, for more general HR tech companies to do um, because there is so much required in it. And so it just seemed like the perfect thing to kind of do next.
1: So I want to ask you a question tied to what you just outlined there, because I I think it's interesting in terms of uh, the two different sizes of organizations that you've lived within. And, and you alluded to working at ADP. I think if there's one HR company that everyone knows, it's ADP, either because we've gotten paychecks through them or whatever the case over the years. Now, you talked about being part of a stealth startup within. Is that anything like being part of a true startup like Harry, which is you know a company that's closer to 500 people?
0: Yes. So I actually find you have the most flexibility in work when you're in a really very large company and then a very small company. Uh, So as you get progressively bigger, they have no choice but to give you more decision making authority. Um, And then when you're in a smaller company, you kind of have to take the bull by the horns and play many roles. Um, So it's more alike than you think. Um, I actually find that middle ground is probably the space I like the least because when you're, (laughs) you kind of almost over-engineer on process versus like allowing kind of strategy and the ability to move with the business and empower teams to make great decisions. So I love the fact that ADP gave me a tremendous amount of discipline um, and able to think about business and able to think about strategy and have resources to do that. And now I apply that to really take startups and scale them up. Um, and that's been the most fun for me uh, in my career. This is now my second one, um, where I've come in at this similar revenue point, and size of about 20 to 30 million, and then kind of really kind of taking it and, and making it grow on steroids.
1: So I want to go back to the way you categorized ADP and the opportunity in this large company to actually have more responsibility because they almost, as you said, have to give it to you. Do you think though that there's a type of individual inside these large organizations that rises because they take on those opportunities, whereas others maybe sit back? And what advice do you have for others or maybe an example that you did that allowed you to rise to the top?
0: Couldn't agree more with that. Yes, you do have to be the right type of person to navigate an organization that's complex like that. Uh, So the words of advice I always give anybody who's in more of a networked model is A, know who makes you successful and know who you make successful and make sure you understand each other and have fantastic relationships and are working towards the same thing. Uh, The second thing is raise your hands. Go after the really hard stuff that any organization is trying to transform through and be a part of that team. Um, if you do that, not only will you leverage your brand, but you will learn a ton and really be able to stretch outside of your comfort zone.
1: That's, a, that's a, some really great takeaways. And I think I, I speak to so many people who sometimes feel trapped inside of a larger organization yet like the opportunity and the op- the opportunity, not just within their role, but to explore, as you said. Now, I'm I'm curious, shifting though, to a company of the size of Harry, and you said the, the second time you've had this type of scale, how do you provide those opportunities to your team today as a CMO when there's only so many people, there's only so much rotation that's possible in the same way or different business units? And maybe you can start by just quantifying how big your marketing team is.
0: Sure. So my total team is around 13 today, um, but that includes a little more than just marketing. Um, So I have sales development. I have sales enablement. I also have tech writing um, underneath my foray. They actually write the UX on our product. I have about seven actual marketers across the UK and the US um, who I like to hire Swiss Army Knives. Uh, So I find people who have both a passion for a very particular area, but skill across and the ability to make sure that we're leveraging them in the ways that are going to give them a depth of what they have experience in, but also new experiences. There's no room for people not to be scrappy in an organization of our size. So we have to be very clear on, you know, being strategic, but all getting our, you know, rolling up our sleeves and getting our hands dirty, myself included. And I find the best learning opportunities are often when I can kind of get in the trenches and pull down, you know, kind of here, here's how I think about this opportunity and really have do reverse coaching with them. So, because to me, honestly, people tend to be concerned about what they don't know, When honestly, their instincts 90% of the time tell them what should be in the right direction. So one of the things that you either love or hate about me as a leader is that I'm going to drive you to be uncomfortable and to try things that you've never done before. Um, But you have to always raise your hand and tell me when it's too much um, because I will push until you learn because I look for potential and I try to bring out the absolute best in every person who's on my team.
1: I love that. I I love everything you outlined there and and I'm sure you're going to get some job applications after this episode goes live because that's the type of environment that people want to be in. I have a question though for you, because being a CMO, a lot of us often think, okay, well now I need a really strong team of leaders themselves who are good people managers and, and who can grow into people management and hire teams as the company continues to scale. So with where you are of, of, you know, actual traditional marketers, somewhere under 10 people within within the team you said, how many of those people do you bring on who are scrappy at a, say, director or VP level? Or how many are more managers who are open to some of the expectations that you just outlined?
0: Awesome. So I have uh, a VP and three directors on my team. So they lead our people, but they're involved and with it across the way. And we have some up and coming folks who are kind of moving into more kind of managerial type roles, but have been individual contributors so far. Um, Every single one of my directors has led before, whether that's small teams or not. But the the point for us is to grow those teams, um, both through experience, but also through kind of size and scale. Um, So I try and bring on people who have the instinct and the experience in the work, but also who are ready to lead across the entire team.
1: Interesting. So how do you determine in your interview process with someone who's at a VP level that is willing to, as you've said, roll up their sleeves, get their hands dirty, but still has that ability to grow as a manager and hopefully let go of some of those responsibilities when the time comes?
0: Yeah. So letting go is what I often see is the hardest thing for anybody as they grow in their career. Because at first you get paid for what you do. And at some point you get paid for what you know. Um, and balancing those two can be very difficult for everybody, myself included. But it's the ability to kind of think, to think at that level, but to be able to define Kind of what is the execution plan, so you can let others run, um, and that is the the brilliance behind like what we try and use day in and day out, which is really kind of an integrated model, so that we're giving enough guidance but enough freedom at the same time for everyone on the team to lead a project, to kind of do something outside of their of their you know initial scope, um, but also to be able to elevate themselves back up to think about the company overall, Um, and we have to do that by being very clear on what we will and won't do. Uh, Saying no is just as much a part of strategy as saying yes, and if we're clear on 80% of kind of what we're going to do based on the strategy of what we're trying to accomplish, the other 20% is the fun part because that allows us to pivot with the market and make those adjustments. that's kind of the the elevation of like, how do I give them levity to pull themselves back up into thinking about the big picture, but also to kind of get their hands dirty in the fun parts that um, will help them and their teams be more successful.
1: That's really, really well put and, and a good way to evaluate people and also set them up for success once, once they've bought in. Jennifer, we're going to keep you around. We got a few questions for you coming after the break as we shift a little bit more into thinking about how you go to market right after this message on the marketer's journey. Want to improve the buyer journey for your customers and your prospects? Look no further than our presenting
0: sponsor, Uberflip. and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com slash journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences.
1: I have to read back some of Jennifer's words there because I absolutely love it. She talked about how at the beginning of your career, you maybe get paid for what you do and eventually you get paid for what you know. And I think this is what we really have to realize in terms of advancing in our career. We can't always be the one that executes on every little detail. We can't control every part of our narrative or execution of a campaign. We need to show others on our team how to do so. And when we do that, we become a leader versus purely a marketer. And you've heard so many people on this podcast talk about being the CMO is part of being the leadership team of your organization so reflect on that determine where it's still appropriate for you to be the person who's getting paid for what you do versus what you know Jennifer, I'd love to talk a little bit about your go to market strategy and one of the things I was doing math because you gave me some really interesting data in terms of how you're scaling. Uh, I believe there's over 500 customers, but that means many restaurant locations in in many cases, so over 22,000 locations. So I'm doing the math trying to think about the average number of stores that you may want. But you were explaining to me that that number just keeps rising. So, how do you determine your sweet spot and what you want to target versus what you want to say no to?
0: Yeah, so it's actually been a bit of a journey we've been on. Um, I arrived at Harry in July, and I think we kind of historically have been like we had a you know some small deals and like some very very big deals and. You know, trying to kind of get into that, like, how do you look at the making sure you're consistently delivering doubles and triples, you know, while still considering the scale kind of from an enterprise perspective. So we spent a lot of time early on uh, looking at what really determined kind of best fit target market. I spent some time working at a company that was Vista Equity and they've got some really good kind of frameworks for some of this and that I've kind of adapted and kind of made my own to some extent. Um, And so we really kind of took through some of the thinking of not only was it about size, but like what was the, some of the psychographics related to the companies that we do really well with to be able to determine criteria around that. So So we did some really strong segmentation, kind of got to like a top 200. And what we found was, hey, like when we look at it, our sweet spot is somewhere around uh, 2,000 to 10,000. And then really kind of a high focus on compliance markets and things like that, that actually drove buyer behavior in a different way than maybe necessarily size. Um, so it's been a bit of a journey, you know, we've started now kind of taking those top 200 and applying, you know, ABM to that, um, really looking to drive experience, but it's the readiness of that can be very hard, um, for companies at this stage.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a big evolution also, as you said, I mean, you've been there about a year, Doing this, and and you've shared with me that you have some locations that start with you that that only have five stores, uh, is very different than some of them that you're talking about that have thousands of stores in terms of how you go about them. And I suppose as you just dropped that, you know, three letter acronym ABM, very hard to rationalize going after the five store location with an ABM strategy so is does this mean that you're you're slowly hoping to to shift and maybe within that, how did you where did what data did you use to zero in on that right two hundred account list
0: yeah, so and we'll see if it's right um we've just implemented that's kind of giving us more insight, but what we did was we really looked at like historical wins. We looked at where do we have ease of implementation and really feel good about like both speed, but also just you know client satisfaction. Um, we also looked at concept types. We have some very interesting kind of demographics in the restaurant space that are a little bit different than others in terms of multi-concepts you know they own various different logos there's ones that are very franchise oriented franchises buy in many different ways um and then you also have kind of the full service experience and hotels as kind of part of that hospitality nature they all buy a little differently um so how do you find the ones that buy the way you do apply them in a manner to be able to say, these, these are the ones that we've been able to move through faster, have been able to have a better relationship and have felt really good about what we're doing um, and putting those at the top. And then um, there's also a lot of compliance, which gave us a really nice kind of way to look at kind of geography as a kind of area that was really positive for us because uh, compliance is huge challenge for folks. So it's a pain point that we can really dive into very quickly. So that's been some, you know, the the way they buy has been very important to us and kind of looking at past experience and how that would help translate to kind of our future. Um, so that's how we really looked at that and then applied that and said, okay, based on this, like what makes sense? Uh, so we have also now segmented that down into we have groups in terms of franchise, et cetera, but everybody has a top five. Um, and then we've tiered from there. So we have four tiers of accounts based on criteria. Um, and then we've allocated specific budgets and specific expectations around activity related to kind of by that tiered methodology to kind of knock that down faster. Um, we also just recently implemented Sixth Sense, which of course evaluated kind of our work that we did more from kind of gut and experience in data and have seen that we have pretty good fit in terms of strong and moderate fit accounts based on what they see. Um, so right now we're kind of taking that time to double down efforts related to strong and moderate and look at, do we move the week out? and move some some others in that makes sense so we try and evaluate that every quarter um so that we're con- consistently looking at it but letting it have enough time to breathe at the same time
1: interesting so i want to get a little bit deeper into use the word we a lot and i want to understand that when you talk about abm and you talk about these top five accounts is that the mindset of we as in harry as a whole or is that we from a marketing perspective. And I I know you shared earlier that SDRs are part of marketing. So where does that mindset of figuring out the right account and lining that up begin and end?
0: So if it's not everybody at Harry, then we will not be successful. I think about go-to-market holistically, So, and a lot of people think that means just through the sales cycle. But when we looked at the accounts that we were focusing on and the way that we we're thinking about them, that included customer success and you know what was going to be most successful for them and be really positive um, bringing in and, and taking through. Um, And that's important, right? Because like a lot of our opportunity now as as we've been adding new products is really through the customer growth lens. Like we probably haven't spent enough time there, honestly. Um, And that's kind of another area that we're looking to penetrate more. But we have to be all in around who we're going after and why, um, because otherwise we will not say no to the things that won't get us there because we will have conflicting alignment across teams. So we really try to deliver a go-to-market strategy that is integral to you know, marketing, sales, and customer to make sure that everybody's feeling like they have a seat at the table. In fact, we actually run a biweekly go-to-market all hands across all of those teams, um, across all regions to make sure that we're seeing the alignment, the camaraderie that we're sharing and having that experience of we all win together.
1: I love that. it It definitely sounds like it, it's an all- in mentality, as you've described. Now, the other part I'm curious about, and and you've told me you just you think of the full journey um and not you know the the top of the funnel versus you know middle of the funnel where your responsibility begins and ends. What about the role of content? you uh, you know this is one that I love to talk about and and I'm curious the mindset at Harry around, when content is most needed by your buyers?
0: Yeah, so um, my opinion is probably really that kind of consideration phase is when they're most kind of seeking things out without you knowing them and you know illuminating some of that dark funnel. But like really trying to make sure that that fits them is is something we've tried to do, and I think we are evolving on. Um, it's interesting though, where we're seeing now with the market dynamics is ROI is a huge piece of this and like being very authentic in what are they challenged by? Where could they see opportunity, you know, from, you know, both kind of, Winning on bringing Harry on to help save and drive performance of the organization, but also to kind of help them make the business case for success. So I'm actually seeing more movement in content being important further down kind of mid funnel in bringing all of the decision makers to the table, Um, because a lot of people are uh, not right now, you know, just given kind of some of the economic environment stuff. And you really have to be very good at creating the case for change. If you're going to get everybody in line, that the time is now to make that change and it will have the benefit that they're looking for.
1: Interesting. And and as you describe that middle of funnel stage, who's the messenger that you think about? Is that still on marketing to be the person delivering either through marketing automation or is that more transitioning between the sdr and an account executive at some at some point
0: definitely more in my case the account executive um the account executive is kind of helping build that case for change we're kind of behind the scenes you know giving them the the tools and the kind of messaging to support that or even at times like i act as an executive sponsor a lot it's the, you know, how do you come to the table and be able to set that table for them to get more people to buy in and be ready to go? Um, we're seeing, you know, I think as everybody is, like deals extend because you have much more a uh, need for finance to be involved. So we can get everybody, I think, to the table that has a vested interest in making change for employee experience. But like, how do you kind of make sure that that financial and economic buyer is bought in? and that everybody's really excited about that and not just seeing it as an expense is something that we've been doing a lot more of. So that means building tools that can do that, um, really helping to assess the uh, current state of an organization and being able to then facilitate through things like sales enablement and through great content that gives them the ability to speak to it, the ability to demonstrate that ROI Um, Another piece of that is we're doing a lot on um, kind of customer stories that are very data-driven, being able to be able to support that and, and do that in a way that makes sense in those specific concept types is also really important. So, you know, we've invested in some things like anatomy of decision, where we're looking at multiple customers talking about why they chose Harry and what they've been able to accomplish as a result of it. um, And really tried to build those out to support, you know, both some of the products that we're looking to grow, um, but also the types of customers that are involved in those stories that are similar to the ones that we're looking to bring on through our ABM efforts.
1: Interesting. Well, Jennifer, I'm really enjoying hearing how you're moving up market leveraging ABM in really forward thinking ways. We're going to take a break here, though. I've got a few more questions in more rapid fire format right here on the marketer's journey. As Jennifer hit on transitioning to focus on more of the middle of the funnel and bridging beyond just SDRs to AEs and how you aid, I couldn't help but be reminded of the trend we're seeing in the rise of a digital sales room. A digital sales room as described by go-to-market partners, an analyst firm, is an area that you as a marketing team can work with your sales reps so that they can build destinations for progressing a deal, for providing the content that your buyer needs to get the rest of their buying committee on side and continue to be both enabled and your champion. Sometimes it actually allows you to bring them back even for a conversation. Now with more context, now ready to progress in a deal. So take a look at what you're doing internally to enable not just your marketing resources, but also your go-to-market teams, your sales reps, or even deeper in the funnel, perhaps success reps who have to put the right content in front of the right buyer at the right time. Jennifer, you've shared so much and people who listen to this podcast often know my my next question is always around the type of leader you need to be to be a CMO. But I, I'm going to shift that for you because I know that you're passionate about a group called Chief. And maybe you can talk about what Chief is and how it's helped you.
0: Sure. So Chief is all about kind of bringing the next line of leaders through. Um, so really helping uh, executive women in leadership get seat at the C-level table. Um, I use them for everything from recommendations on marketing tech to um, also my own personal career. So coaching through negotiations, uh, legal contract negotiations, all that type of thing, a mountain of resources and people who will help you succeed.
1: That's amazing. Yeah, I met a number of chief members this past week, and they all told me that you have to negotiate chief in as part of your comp package wherever you go next, because it will help you be the right leader as, as part of that table, at that seat at the table that you earn. Let's shift to an, another topic. and And we talked a little bit about content and the role of SDRs on your team. I'm curious for you, How does someone break through your inbox, get on your radar? What is it that you find that works best?
0: Oh, I share these all the time with my team. Uh, Works best is know me as a human and know me as a business person. And not just kind of taking something from my LinkedIn and reframing a sentence, but truly connecting the dots. Uh, I had a rep from Sendoso who like realized he had the same name as my son and like used that for all it's worth. And he got a meeting.
1: There you go. There you go. Get personal. So, so what do you think is the best way to do that? How do you get personalized? Is it creeping you on, on Instagram or is it, you know, can chat GPT somehow do this for us? Like what, what do you guide your SDRs to do to get in on that human element?
0: So I often coach them to think about who they are and think about what are the things around them that make them tick. I am a very open, transparent person. I share a lot on LinkedIn. Not everybody does. Sometimes it's about rounding out based on people who are around them. You know, the job of the SDR is not a one meeting job. So often it means finding people around that person that you're really trying to crack. So I think it's asking good questions, trying to find common points of ground uh, to be able to make an authentic connection.
1: I love that. Really, really well put. So my last question for you is also about being human, but that's more the balance of what is important to you with the need to be available to your team as a CMO. How do you create that balance and and what are some of the tactics that you have to prioritize whatever is going on on the other side?
0: Yeah. So I have two small children, uh, a three-year-old and a 19-month-old who I worked very hard to get. Um, So... I try and make sure that there are good boundaries related to um, how to get me if I'm not present or online. And then also making sure that when we do take time off and I'm better at protecting them than I am myself, is that that time is really spent with their family and with the things that are important to them. I also outsource as much as I can in terms of things that aren't valuable so I can spend as much time in the work and with my family than I possibly can.
1: I love that. Can you give an example of something that you would outsource and you would encourage someone to realize that I don't have to do it all?
0: So I think the first time I hired someone to clean my house was like a liberating moment. (laughs) Uh
1: It's so true. I I mean, the little things we have to ask for help for and realize that as much as we can do them well, uh, you know, there's people who are willing to do so at the same time. Uh, You know, Jennifer, there's been so much great advice in this episode. And I thank you for sharing and being, as you said, so transparent and open about how you lead and how you think of the buyer journey and how you're really evolving what's happening at Harry. I, if, someone is tuned in as this being their first episode, I encourage you to listen to all the other great CMOs who have joined me. I'm somewhere over 150 now who I've been fortunate to speak to. And if you're creating your own path, I assure you there's not one. One day, hopefully you'll be on this episode to share your journey. Until next time, big thanks, Jennifer.